Well, good morning, everybody. So I had one of those weird things happen on Facebook this week. I mean, yeah, it's Facebook, right? Uh, I was just checking in on some of my friends, and one of them posted that the stores in their area in Ohio put out Christmas stuff on Monday, July 3rd, Monday. It's like, seriously? How much time do you think we need to prepare for Christmas? Um, I think we're pushed in a lot of ways to be constantly preparing for things in this life. So much so that one person said, you know, we spend most of our lives indefinitely preparing to live. We get pushed to prepare for a lot of stuff. It seems like anymore we're constantly prepping for the next holiday, the next event, the next family gathering. If you're in school, maybe you've decided to go back and get an advanced degree or finish your college degree for the first time. You know what that's like. You're constantly doing assignments, prepping homework, prepping for tests, prepping for exams. If you like to do sports competitively, you're always preparing for the next game, the next tournament, the next season. We're always being pushed to prepare. And as I thought about that this week, I remembered my grandmother had her own unique idiosyncrasies about preparing. We would go see them, and they lived in the hills of eastern Kentucky, which explains a lot for me and you. Um, But right as we got ready to go, every time, we'd be like ready to get in the car, and my grandmother would look at us. Curious if yours did this. My grandmother would look at us and go, do you have clean underwear on? It's like to this day, I don't understand that, right? It's like what relevance does that have? I guess where she lived in the hills of eastern Kentucky... If you were in a serious auto accident, the first thing the EMTs would check was not your pulse, not to see if you're breathing. It's like they would just check your underwear. And that's the deciding factor in whether you get to live or you die is you have clean underwear on. So I guess it's important to be prepared. But seriously, if you listen to all the voices around us from marketing to media to naysayers and doomsday predictors... They're going to tell us we have to start preparing for all kinds of things immediately, right? We're going to prepare for the collapse of the American economy, for the Christmas snow or the summer heat. Weather's never great around here, right? Emergencies, we have to prepare for those. We have to prepare for retirement. And the list of things that we have to prepare for goes on ad nauseum. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul again and again, paints this very realistic picture of what it's like to live a life for Jesus. And he says, yeah, there's going to be great stuff. There's lots of benefits to living a life for Jesus. But in the end, you need to know that it's going to be full of challenges too. And you need to be prepared. Here's the problem with that. We don't have inside of us what it takes to meet those challenges, to prevail against those challenges. We don't have enough strength. We don't have enough wisdom to make it through. The longer I live, the more I'm convinced it's not in any of us, that we need something outside of us. We need something bigger than us. We need God to help us through all these challenges we're going to face. I think that's why Paul writes, Therefore, put on the whole armor of God, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And when you've done everything, to stand. Well, last Sunday we kicked off this four-part series out of 
the book of Ephesians and really just looking at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20, just 11 verses. And we've titled the series, Having a Faith Worth Fighting For. Because there were a number of you out last week, I want to just like give you a 30-second overview of what we covered so we're all on the same page today. Paul teaches us that the source of life's challenges is much deeper than we would imagine. That we're not fighting against some government official. We're not fighting against other religions or people groups. And our challenges really aren't born out of that one individual who seems to challenge our faith or belittle our faith. Paul says the root cause of our problems is deeper than that. You and I are caught in the middle of a spiritual battle between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell. And Paul says we know that those challenges are going to come. And so we need to be prepared. Therefore, in light of the fact that the forces of hell are going to be unleashed against you and me to try to bring down our faith, destroy our faith, therefore, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Numerous times in his letters to the various churches, Paul uses this analogy of putting on God's armor. In it, he's just reaching into his contemporary culture. They're occupied, as is most of the world, occupied by the Roman army, soldiers everywhere, battle images everywhere. And so he reaches into his contemporary culture and draws this analogy for what it's like for us to live for Christ. It's a battle, he says. A battle with cultural influences that have fought for millennia to try to chip away at our faith in God. It's a battle even within our own souls, fighting our own urges, our temptations, and what I like to call our signature sins. Those areas where we know we're tripped up often. Paul unwraps this idea a little bit more in the book of Romans than he does here in Ephesians when he writes to those Christians and says, here's what that's all about. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. So here in Ephesians, in Romans, in other books in the New Testament, even back in the book of Isaiah in chapters 11, 52, and 59, Isaiah uses this battle image, and all of them collectively point to the fact that putting on God's armor is really about adopting His character in our lives, becoming like the character of God in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. Now, if you've ever tried to change some aspect of your character, you know that's tough work. It's not accomplished simply, easily. We have to retrain our thought life. We have to do away with ingrained habits that our thoughts have helped form for us. And sometimes, some of the deepest work comes when we recognize that because we now live for Christ, we have to end some relationships that we had before because those people, in spite of our efforts, are not drawing us towards Christ. They're drawing us away from Him. About 10 years ago, Darren sat up here teaching and held up a book uh, by Alan Deutschman called Live or Die. I still remember that, that day. I have the book. I've read it numerous times. I love that book. Uh, coincidentally, I'm going to listen to the podcast and talk to Darren and see if he remembers anything I said, you know, 10 years ago. But 
Um, so Alan, uh, writing about this, and not from a Christian perspective, but it's full of truth, talks about this necessity of changing our character may mean changing relationships. He says, when you face a dramatically new way of thinking, feeling, and acting, you face possible rejection and alienation from colleagues, friends, and family members who shared your old conceptual framework. The way you're now living makes no sense to them. It seems ridiculous. It seems wrong. It simply doesn't fit with their values, their beliefs, their assumptions, and their expectations. Changing your own life often means changing your community, which is hard to see and very difficult to get through. The kind of change that we're talking about here in being prepared for the battles that come, putting on the character of God, picking up all of that armor, takes a significant investment of time and work, but it is a necessary character change, character development, if we hope to make it through this life with our faith intact. Being prepared, I think, requires that we carve out space in our already busy lives to grow in our relationship with God. And the more time we spend with Him, the more our character begins to reflect his. I know it's true in my own life. The more time that I spend with God, the more my behavior, my attitude, my interactions with other people begin to dramatically change for the positive. And that comes about when I consistently, regularly spend time digging into and reading God's Word. When I spend time consistently, regularly praying, pouring out my heart to God, listening to what God would say back to me. When I do those things on a consistent basis, you can tell I've done them because my reactions to problems in life changes. My reaction to life in general changes. It is so much better. Little things don't get under my skin like they used to. I show more grace, more love, more kindness, more gentleness, more patience and self-control in my life. My actions begin to reflect the character of Christ. Now, I'm encouraged not just when I'm alone and doing these things with God, but I'm also encouraged in my process of reshaping my character when I'm with my community group. They provide a perspective on my life. They provide insights on my spiritual journey that I can't get on my own. I have blind spots. And so they help me see where I'm making progress and help me celebrate. They see me, help me see gently and lovingly where I've still got some work to do. They help me apply what I already know. And I am convinced that the majority of our character change happens in community. And community is where our character is tested most. If we're going to do this, it's going to take some intentionality on our part. Dallas Willard said, projects of, self, of personal transformation rarely, if ever, succeed by accident, drift, or imposition. We have to want it, and we have to work for it if we're going to change. Because these are some big, hairy changes. They just are. For a lot of us, it's stuff that we haven't worked on for decades. And if we say now we want to reflect the character of Christ, we're going to have to change. And change a lot to be prepared for the spiritual battles we're going to face. But we don't have to change it all at once. And we don't have to do it on our own. It's a process. 
putting on the character of God, the character of Christ, can begin simply, basically, by just scheduling 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day, where you sit down and you dig into God's Word, where you pray. For some of us, we're so calendar-driven, stuff doesn't happen if it's not on our calendar, and so we have to just put in a 15-minute appointment with God at a consistent time every day. Plus, it looks good when you reject a meeting, and they say, well, who are you meeting with? Well, I'm meeting with God. I've had people assume that's my wife. When I've written that on my calendar, I say, no, that's a meeting with God, but I will confess that God's voice sounds a lot like my wife's. We have a four-hour car right ahead of us today. I think I'm going to pay for that one. Um, so it's just put that 15 minutes into your calendar. Spend time with God. Read some scripture. Pray. If it helps, write your prayers out in a journal. You can do that whole thing on your commute. If you ride the train, you've got time to do that. You can do it on your lunch break. Take a 15-minute lunch break instead of working straight through. Spend a little time with God. You can do it a lot of homes after dinner. There's some space in there. Everybody kind of scatters, and you can have some quiet time then. I've talked about this before, and I've had people come up to me and say, you know, but Greg, my life is so busy. I'm so maxed out. I don't know where I'm going to squeeze something else into my calendar. And I think the more they talk, the more we get to the root of it when they say, And besides that, I hate to read. So I want to just give you one simple idea this morning to begin to take on the character of Christ. I would love to suggest that you install the YouVersion Bible app on your smartphone, on your tablet, or on your computer. And it works on every system platform. I don't care if you're a Mac user or a PC user. I don't care if you, you know, go into the Apple store or you go into Google store. I don't care. It's in both. It's been made available by this wonderful church in Oklahoma who now has like 30 or 40 translations of the Bible. And it's in over a thousand languages. And it's free. And the best part about the app is this. You can listen to it just by pressing a speaker button. It will read the passage to you so you don't have to read. It's just like God sent you a personal podcast, right? So here's what I want to ask you to think about doing. Commit to doing, if you will. I had one person come up and say, tell me again, help me download it after first service. Commit to listening to the Bible for 20 minutes. The average commute time in Chicago is 25. That's a good day, right? If you listen to the Bible 20 minutes a day, 30 days from now, you will have listened through the entire New Testament. That's all it takes. It's not much. Right? I mean, I live two and a half miles away from here. It takes me 10 minutes to drive to work. I can use the time driving to and driving from work to invest in listening to God speak to me through his word. You've got places like that in your schedule too where we can just invest in that relationship. The bottom line is it will change your outlook and your perspective to life, and it will change your reaction to the events of life and the battles you have to face. God has made this impressive array of, oh, by the way, one more benefit I have to mention is if you're listening to the Bible while you're driving your car, it's really challenging to try to flip someone off. (laughs) Just saying. Wouldn't you love to be pulled over by a police officer who goes, why were you messing with your phone while you were driving? I, I was, you know, 
adjusting where I was listening in the Bible. Sure you were. Give me your license. <laughs> but just those 20 minutes. God's made all of this armor available to us. And Danielle's going to talk next week about the different pieces of armor that Paul writes about. But he's made it available to us for our growth, for our protection, for the spiritual battles we're going to face. The problem is we have to pick it up. We have to put it on. Paul says, do that. Don't go into battle unprepared. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, it's an ominous ominous statement, isn't it? When the day of evil comes. And we all know what a good day looks like, right? I mean, we had a, Connie and I had a good day yesterday. We were on the motorcycle for nine hours yesterday, almost to where uh, Wisconsin and Iowa meet. It was a beautiful ride, gorgeous day, lots of conversation. We got home in time to go to a friend's house and help them celebrate their daughter's graduation and their impending freedom. You know what I mean if you're close to that stage? We know what good days look like. We know what bad days look like. Bad days, you know, are like the last song we sang, which talks about swimming through a river of heartache. Paul's not talking about good days and bad days. We know those, and we have them often. Most of our days are a mixture of good and bad. But Paul says we're not just going to have bad days, we're going to have evil days. And a lot of people read that and think, well, he must be talking about the end of time. He must be talking about the apocalypse. No, it's not his language. He's talking about those very bad, horrible, awful days in our life. Days when it feels like the forces of hell have been unleashed against us. We're trying our best to stand our ground. And then we discover there's no rules of engagement in those days for the devil. There shouldn't be. There isn't. He'll attack us at our weakest. He will use circumstances to discourage us. He'll tempt us to to do those things that we said we would never, ever do again. And his favorite tactic is to hit us when we are alone and vulnerable. There are moments in life that feel like evil days. Days when the devil has unleashed everything he can throw at us, sending it our way. Days when temptation flares up, when tempers are short, when friends abandon us, and it is downright discouraging. Sometimes we are tempted to give up on faith and even to give up on life. And that's understandable. Because the devil's whole goal in this battle is discouragement, it's confusion, it's to create indifference in us, to just create this little gap that he can get a foot in so that he can keep working and make that gap between us and God wider and wider and wider. That's why he manufactures those evil days in our lives. And that's why Paul is so adamant that we put on God's armor. He puts on, he, he speaks a very direct command to us. Put it on. Build your life around God's character so that when these evil days come, even if they catch you by surprise, you're not, un, you're not unprepared. Now the good news is, in this passage, that no matter what happens in our life, when we begin to center our life and our character around God's character, 
He is there to supply us the power, the strength, the tools we need to be protected so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And when you've done everything, to still be standing. Paul uses that word two times in this verse with a little different application in the original language. The first time he says you'll be able to stand your ground. And the language points to -to hand-to-hand combat that troops would do. That messy, nasty, no-holds-barred, in-the-trenches combat. And we need God's protection and strength when we're in a spiritual battle like that. The second one has a little different picture to it. Recently I read about a Marine commander who served for years in Afghanistan. And he would gather his troops together every morning and he'd say, look, here's the deal. The Taliban can start a fight anytime they want, but we will always finish it. That's Paul's idea here. When he says, when everything's been thrown at you, when the devil's done his worst and he's done a lot, when you have done everything you need to do, you will still be standing. It paints this beautiful image of a soldier standing in the middle of a battlefield after the conflict has ended. And he knows it's been a long, hard, demanding fight with lots of casualties, lots of wounded people around him. And he stands there and he surveys the battlefield. His uniform is soaked with sweat and dirt and blood. His eyes are red-rimmed with exhaustion. There's craters all around him where the artillery shells have chewed up the ground. And he stands there with the firm knowledge that the, that the enemy's going to attack again tomorrow and the next day. But tonight he'll sleep well. Because when the smoke cleared, he was standing. Where are you going to be when the smoke clears? When the battle ends in your life. This verse is very personal to me, very painful for me because of some memories I have. I have real life examples of just how important the spiritual battle is that we are in. I've said before I was raised in the church, in the church since I was two weeks old. My parents always went, always took me. In fact, when I was 12, My parents were one of six couples that said, there's not a strong church in our community. Let's start one. So not with a pastor, not with professional help, the six families started a church and hired a pastor. That church was where they faced some really tough battles and discovered their faith wasn't that strong. They were what I would call wobbly Christians. The church I grew up in was riddled with conflict, with nasty behavior, and with people who were constantly jockeying for positions of leadership, not because they wanted to serve, but because they wanted to control the direction and the finances of the church. I still remember that one evening we drove home from church and Dad went to the answering machine and started playing back the messages, and I heard as one of the people who went to that church made a death threat against my dad and my mom, and our whole family. Those were dark days. And when the battle got really, really heated, my parents 
got out. They made the decision to walk away from their friends, to walk away from the church, to walk away from their faith for 25 years. I can't help believe that that kind of struggle is unnecessary. It was unnecessary for them. It's unnecessary for us. There's a better way to engage in these battles. God has put all the power, all the tools that we need in our hands, tools to reshape our own character, tools to prepare us for whatever the devil may throw at us. But we need to pick up these tools. We need to put on the armor. We need to work grace and truth and love into the core of our being and take on the character of Christ. Being prepared is what makes us confident. Being prepared helps us know that we need a strength that's not our own. Being prepared makes us vigilant for the devil's attacks and aware so that they don't catch us by surprise. So we're ready. So that we can live with a strong faith that will face the toughest challenges that life can throw at us and we'll still be standing at the end of the day and we will enjoy this amazing, joyous life in the middle of the battles a life that God desires for each and every one of us.